Morning, everybody. Um, I am a sucker this time of year for kids, infant dedication, especially um, seeing kids as they come into church this time of year in their Easter dresses and their spring clothes. I love it. And um, one of my favorite things that I try to do each week um, is, is to serve as a greeter before and after services on Sunday, particularly the second service. I love it. But the story that I'm going to share um, could possibly get me fired as a greeter. Not even my kids know this story I checked. Um, so scandalous is this story that after you hear it, some of you will pity me, some of you will laugh and make fun of me, some of you may respond in utter disbelief, that's what Brian Burns did when he heard this story, and some of you, to avoid causing me pain and embarrassment as a greeter, when you see me greeting at church, you will go out of your way to avoid speaking with me. So scandalous is this story. But please don't do that last one. I love my job as a greeter, and, uh, and I love seeing all of you come into church. So, but this is the one story I thought of, though, um, as I studied our scripture for this morning. Are you ready? There is no one in this room today, I believe this, who is more shy than me. I am a screaming, screaming introvert. You won't believe that. Or you may not believe that since I'm standing here in front of a group of people, but the truth is, I'm more comfortable speaking to a group of 10,000 people, even if it's 10,000 people I don't know, even if it's 10,000 people who don't like me, than I'm comfortable speaking with just one or two people who I don't know. Um, and an extrovert, can't relate to, an, an extrovert can't relate to that at all, I'm sure. Relating with the public, people who I don't know very well, over long periods of time in particular, in, in particularly, positively exhausts me. It's exhausting to me. Um, naturally, when I finished college, my first field of business was public relations. <laughs> and after I graduated from college, my first job was in a public relations department of just this great advertising agency in Denver, and I was so grateful for my first job. And in about 1995, my most important account was one of the larger oil and gas companies in Denver. And uh, that year, my client at this company, who was a positively wonderful and talented lady, asked me to go with her to a conference in Arizona where she wanted me to train her store owners on public relations. And when I walked into the hotel in Arizona for this meeting, it was an introvert's worst nightmare. Um, four days of meeting with people, really nice people, but people I didn't know. And it was my job to relate with them. That was my job. It was my biggest account. And um, <laughs> they even had this Moroccan-themed uh, reception where everybody took their shoes off, their socks off. They sat at tables with no legs and no chairs, and they ate dates and figs and nuts and drank beer. And I don't do any of those things, especially with my shoes and socks off. <laughs> and um, it, it was just a nightmare. And on the fourth day of this convention, uh, I delivered my present presentations. I was all dressed up in a tan suit, light purple shirt, and a dark purple tie. I still remember. I, I looked good. And, um, but after four days of being in a strange place, without my bride, without my family, um, and surrounded by people I didn't know, I was absolutely drained. I was drained. 
And that afternoon, my client and I had about 30 minutes to kill before we had to leave for the airport. And, and I just wanted to be left alone. I just wanted to be alone. And, and I finally managed to get away for, uh, by myself for the first time in four days, just, just for a few minutes. And, and as I walked the grounds of this beautiful hotel, I could feel myself getting better, just getting re-energized. But then I looked up, and off in the distance, about a block away, uh, I could see my client walking towards me. She was on a walk, too, and I just didn't have it in me to talk with anyone. And at that moment, I absolutely panicked. Um, I thought about turning around and running the other way. But even I realized that's, that's just not good customer service. I was exposed. I was out in the open. There was nowhere for me to go, and I wasn't thinking logically at the time. I was trapped. But there was a bush. <laughs> and I don't mean a bush. I mean a bush, okay? Now, kids, please don't do this in your job, especially with your biggest customer. So desperate was my need at that moment to avoid people that I didn't crawl into that bush to hide. I dove into that bush to hide. In my suit, I dove. I tried to be still so the leaves didn't move, and I peeked through so I could see the path, like a scene out of the Blair Witch Project or something. And, um, and you know what happens next, right? I'm peeking through and watching this path, trying not to move, and I heard her coming. I could hear her footsteps, and I could see the path. This was my biggest account, right? And I saw these feet walk into my view. I saw the feet turn towards me, and then this lady moved down, opened the branches, uncovering me, and in my shame, crouched down on the ground in my suit in the dirt, she said, what are you doing? And I was so embarrassed and so mortified at that point to this day, I have absolutely no idea what I said to her at that moment. So what does this story have to do with our message today on Matthew 7, verses 21 through 29? We'll talk about that in a few minutes, okay? But first, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this gorgeous morning and for this time of year and the optimism and expectation and excitement that comes with springtime and the events we'll be celebrating and observing in the next few weeks. Um, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In your name we pray, amen. Now this is our sixth and final week in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. By a show of hands, how many of you during the series have read through the Sermon on the Mount at least once? At least once. So as we wrap up our series, I'd like to ask you some questions about it. The Sermon on the Mount is the single large, longest continuous teaching and the most famous in the entire ministry of Jesus. So if we claim to be, or if we desire to be his disciples, his students, or apprentices, it seems important that we consider how this teaching applies to us, right? The first question that I'd like to ask you is this. Who is Jesus to you? What is your relationship with him? What does he mean to you? In a way, we see this question in our scripture for this morning. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. And note the repetition where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? How do these people refer to Jesus in these verses? 
They call him Lord four times in two verses. Repetition in the scriptures is important. Some of you may call Jesus Lord as well. Look now at verses 28 and 29. When Jesus completes the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Who was Jesus to these people? He was an amazing teacher, it says. Unlike any other teachers, it says, because he taught from a position of authority. I count 14 times in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, I tell you. Jesus doesn't cite research to, uh, or things to support his view or footnotes and a bibliography because he is the source, because he is the authority on how to live. So in these verses, the people call him Lord. They call him an amazing teacher. How about you? Do you call him Lord? Do you call him teacher? Do you call him king? Or, or maybe you're sitting here this morning and quite frankly, you don't know or you're not sure. Can I tell you something regardless of your answer? It's okay. Do you realize that some of the very disciples who were listening to Jesus that day asked themselves that question at various points in their relationship with him? Who is this? So please, Please, keep thinking about it. Um, who is Jesus to you? Even more, I have an offer for you. Please come back over the next three weeks at least and hear Nathan Harrison's messages. They're going to be great. When I heard what he was going to be talking about in, those, in these messages and, and in our meeting, he lit the room up with what he's planning to talk about and the events we're going to look at in the next three weeks. So please, Please come. And then I hope each of us can ask ourselves that question again afterwards. Who is Jesus to me? Now, I suspect that few of us in this room have ever asked ourselves the second question about Jesus or about the Sermon on the Mount. I think it is an absolutely brilliant question. And the man who posed this question's name was Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was a professor of uh, philosophy at USC. He's the author of several books, including The Divine Conspiracy and The Great Omission. Two of the most thought-provoking books I've read in the past several years. He even has some lectures on iTunes. Dallas Willard passed, passed away about 11 months ago. And the real areas of emphasis in his Christian writing are spiritual renewal, discipleship, and interestingly, the Sermon on the Mount. His book, The Divine Conspiracy, largely deals with this con the Sermon on the Mount. And the question he asks in that book, which I'm asking you now, is this. Do you believe Jesus is smart? Do you believe that Jesus is a genius? A genius. Jesus' Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart, Willard writes. He is not just nice. He is brilliant. He is the smartest guy who ever lived. He always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in life. Do you believe Jesus is smart? People will pack an auditorium to hear Bill Gates or someone like Stephen Hawking uh, speak. Each year, for the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, 35,000 people will pack the Civic Auditorium in downtown Omaha to hear Warren Buffett talk about the stock market and where they should put their money. 35,000 people for one speech. This is a guy whose company posted record returns to shareholders last year of 18.2%. Where to invest your money for an 18.2% return? 18.2. By comparison, the Sermon on the Mount, also a single talk, 
is a teaching from Jesus on where to invest your life, your life for the eternal future and for now. Are the directives he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount smart? Do they offer a better way to manage how you live here and now? What lies at the heart of the astonishing disregard of Jesus found in the moment-to-moment existence of multitudes of professing Christians is a simple lack of respect for him, writes Dallas Willard. He is not seriously considered or presented as a person of great ability. What then can devotion or worship mean if simple respect is not included in it? Not much. Who is Jesus to you? And do you think he is smart that his teachings are a better way to live? Those are the first two questions I want you to think about. And the third question is also brilliant, and it was posed to me a few weeks ago rhetorically by someone in this congregation. It was posed by Dave McDonald, and it was very convicting to me at the time when he said it, and it changed how I studied our scripture for this morning. And his question is this, are we really supposed to actually do the stuff that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? It sounds like an easy question, but when you consider it in light of what Jesus calls us to do, it's a great question. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches, become angry and you're subject to judgment. Say, you fool, and he says you're in danger of the fire of hell. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Someone slaps you, let them slap the other cheek too. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not worry. Do not worry. I have three teen drivers in my family, and and in four years I'll have four kids in college, and I have a degree in journalism. Don't worry. Don't lust, don't judge. And then there's Matthew 5.48 that says, be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. Does Jesus really expect us to do this stuff? Dallas Willard warns that many teachers today will refer to Jesus' teaching as merely ideals, standards that are so high their function is primarily to beat you into submission that you will crawl to the cross for forgiveness. But then consider some of the words of Scripture. James 1, verses 22 through 25 say, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And Jesus himself says it best, as you'd expect, In a parallel verse to what we're studying this morning, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Willard complains that obeying Christ is not a part of our religion today. Believing in Christ is part of our our religion, but that has been separated from obeying Christ. And his point is, is that we get believership right. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, but we struggle with followership with discipleship, with following him. And that leads me to my favorite writing from Dallas Willard, when you find, which you find in, the, in his book, The Great Omission, chapter 2, where he claims that a heresy has created the impression that it's quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. One in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you please just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? And Willard asks, Can we really imagine that this is an approach that Jesus finds acceptable? 
And Willard finishes that chapter with these words, and, and I find them incredibly convicting. Can I not be saved, that is, get into heaven when I die, without any of this? Perhaps you can. God's goodness is so great, I'm sure that He will let you in if He can find any basis to do so. But you might wish to think about what your life amounts to before you die, about the kind of person you are becoming, and about whether you would really be comfortable for eternity in the presence of one whose company you have not found particularly, have not found especially desirable for the few hours and days of your earthly existence. And he is, after all, one who says to you now, follow me. Are we really supposed to do this stuff in the Sermon on the Mount? Look what Jesus shares in our scripture for this morning. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Both men in this comparison hear Jesus' Jesus' words. What's the difference? The difference is that the wise man puts Jesus' teaching into practice. It's not the skills of the builder or the materials from which they build. This is not the story of the three little pigs. Those things are immaterial. The builder and what they build it out of are immaterial in this parable. The sole difference is where they choose to build. Dave Beatty discussed this with us last week. We know that the standards of righteousness that Jesus put forward in his sermon are impossible because our hearts are wicked, because our hearts will betray us. In the Beatitudes, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be right and in right relationship with him. Thirst for it, hunger for it. Blessed are those whose hearts are transformed by what, where they choose to build. When we started this morning, I, I told you about me hiding in a bush from my client because I was just to, so tired. Oftentimes, I, I think it can be tiring like that when we approach the work of doing the things that Jesus calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. It's really a hard to-do list, and too many times I deny him or hide from him my lack of effort in doing those things. Can I tell you what I found even more alarming? It's a weird thing that caught my attention, more frightening in our scripture for this morning. It's the frightening thought of, not of what if I hid from Jesus? What if he hid from me? What if he didn't know me? Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Wouldn't that be frightening to hear? To hear Jesus say, I I didn't know you. What do you mean you didn't know me? You you, You know how many hairs are on my head. How do you not know me? How can you not know me? Means he desires to know us as we build. It's not our skills in building. He's interested in. It's not how well we build the things we build with. 
We see in the Beatitudes that there's no one in the world, no one in the world who's too far, who's too far away from being able to be blessed by a relationship with Him. It's not how well we build the things we build with, it's the relationship we forge with Him as we build and what He comes to mean to us. When we trust in the things He asks us to do is smart and the better way to live and the better way to do them. And our hearts are transformed, our lives are transformed as we build our lives together with Him. The Sermon on the Mount is not a discouraging list of impossible things to do. It's a promise, a promise of a better way to live when we build our lives faithfully in Him and even more, even more incredibly, with Him. And those are the things that matter. And guys, that's really, really good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the look at your word and this lovely word you've given us, Father. Um, thank you for your scripture and thank you for um, the events we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't ever look at such incredible scripture uh, as a to-do list or a discouraging thing that keeps us from trying or trying to be near you. Father, we pray we would endeavor to walk with you, to build with you, and to build our lives in you and on your word and on your promises. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this day. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody.